Good morning, Ninth Street. We are thankful to be able to gather again in this format, and uh, we know it's not ideal and not what we'd all prefer to be doing, but we're thankful the opportunity is there for us. And so uh, we are grateful that you have joined us here this morning, and uh, we're thankful that uh, uh, we get to spend a few moments uh, this morning thinking about God's Word. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to uh, open up to Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, and uh, we will be there uh, just very shortly here. I hope you're doing okay. Um, there's a lot going on around us, not for us. It seems like um, it seems like every day comes they want us to stay more and more still, and and that can begin to wear on you after a while. Uh, maybe you're like this guy who has learned a new superpower in his life. Um, he gave this update from his lockdown. It says today I melted an ice cube with my mind just by staring at it. It took a lot longer than I thought it would, though. So. Um, maybe you've resorted to watching ice cubes melt. I don't know what you're doing to pass the time in your life, but I, I hope that you are incorporating our, uh, our Core 52 study in your life and uh, uh, daily and weekly as a part of, uh, of your weeks as we, uh, as we jump into this. Um, um, we have continued to give out books each week as we have gone through this, and, uh, and I've heard a lot of good things from people I've been able to talk to. Uh, if you don't have one yet, uh, you can go online. You can order one of those. Call the church office at 392-4685 or go on our church website, 9thstreetcc.com. Uh, there's an order form. We will get you a book. Uh, we will even deliver it for you. And so uh, it provides some wonderful uh, faith-growing opportunities. Um, so if you will um, follow the plan that lays out, uh, it's just going to feed you and grow you and draw your heart to a, to a different theme every week. And this week uh, came, of course, with the way we're preaching through the book, not um, from beginning to end, but just picking out weeks and themes here. This week fell, of course, with the cross as we think about heading into this week um, with Easter and Good Friday and today being Palm Sunday, as Michael said before. And so we're looking today in chapter 23 at the theme of the cross, um, and this fits so well. And so um, if you know the verse, let's say it together. If not, let's read it together. I think it'll be on the screen for you there. Uh, it says this in, uh, in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake uh, will find it. Let's read that again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. And I hope as we press on through these weeks that you'll continue to work hard at memorizing those verses and that those will become a source of encouragement and help and strength, uh, just a resource in your heart and your spiritual walk with the Lord that he can use to encourage you and help you with. So we want to talk today about the verses surrounding that passage, particularly those coming before it. What's Jesus talking about when uh, he says these words? What the, what's the context? And I think by understanding the context of them, I think it helps us to get a better understanding of what Jesus is inviting us to in these, uh, these verses that are so beautiful. So as um, if you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be at the verses preceding that, uh, starting in verse 13 here in just a moment. Now, as you can imagine, if you were just to think about a person like Jesus, as you read him in the page of the Bible, uh, as, as you read through his story, uh, you would imagine that someone like that would garner a lot of attention. Uh, wherever he went, people would notice him and, and see what he was doing, they were amazed by what he said, they wanted to hear him, everyone wanted to be around him. He was quite popular in many, many ways. People were trying to figure out who he was. 
And so Jesus took his disciples from, from Jerusalem and, and, and Galilee in that little region. He spent most of his time, and they traveled north um, in Israel. There was some of one of the farthest north places he went during his ministry. And he gathered his disciples, and he had an important conversation with them while he was there. The conversation centered all about, uh, all around who he was, his identity, and, and them identifying and, and, and seeing that and, and believing and trusting in that. And so in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so that question becomes the, uh, the impetus for what follows. And it's a question that you and I must wrestle with at different stages and different times in our life. Who is Jesus? Because sometimes Jesus is very clear to you at certain times of your life, and then maybe things get difficult, things get hard, the world kind of falls apart upon us. And it's important, as we've entitled this series, Theme the Real Jesus, to pause and, and ask ourselves the question. In light of everything that's going on around us, in light of the, the difficulties, frustrations, fears, worries that we might have, the way that the world is different now than it was just a month or two ago, who is Jesus? Who do, who do we say? Who do I? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And by reminding ourselves of that truth, what Jesus does is he introduces an important question. And I probably should have put an exclamation point at the end of that statement, because it's not just an important question among many others. It's probably the most important question. Who is Jesus? And our answer to that question will determine a great deal of how we respond both to him, to ourselves, and to the world around us. And in fact, that very idea is one that people have wrestled with. Who is Jesus? For, for two millennia now, 2,000 years. They even fought wars over who is Jesus. And so who is this Jesus? And the question that Jesus was asking on that day was on the thoughts of many in his day, and it's continued to be on the hearts and minds of people up to today. And his disciples, um, as they listen to the question from Jesus, who do people say I am? They have listened to the crowds. They have, they've been traveling around with Jesus. They have heard people, what they've said, and they've heard all the rumors and all the talk. And, and so they answer in verse 14 with the answer of, of what they have heard people say. Um, some say, you're John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is now dead, and maybe they think John the Baptist has come back from the, from the dead. Or others say Elijah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, or Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And so they're all thinking, well, this man's different. He teaches differently. He does these things. He's got to be someone of significance. And, and so they've tried to identify and, and associate him with someone uh, that they knew well, and they appreciated. All these would have been heroes of the past that they were comparing Jesus to but Jesus, Jesus, while he asked the question, he, he probably is interested in what other people say, but that's really not why he asked the question. He asked the question because he, while he's con interested in what others say, he specifically wants to know what his disciples will answer this question with. Who do you say that I am? In verse 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a dating relationship. It's been a long time, 25 years since I've been in one. Um, and, and in those days and times uh, when you went through that and there's that awkward, and even in a marriage, I guess this still applies, um, after having just said bringing up dating relationships, I probably have to define this in a minute. But there's the old DTR thing that we have to do sometimes, define the relationship. Right? We always come to those junctures in the course of, of getting to know each other where you come to those moments where we have to define the relationship. What is this? Is this a friendship? Is this more than a friendship? Are we going to pursue this? Are we getting married? What is this going to be? What is this relationship? We have to the DTR is what they used to call it. Define the relationship. And in some ways, that's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples. 
He's defining the relationship. Is Jesus just a, a wonderful prophet? Is he the Messiah? Because depending on how they define that relationship and who they think he is, it determines how they will respond and, and how he will be thought of and treated and, and responded to. And that's exactly what happens here. Peter responds quickly, as you would expect Peter to, as Peter is the one who tends to always respond quickly um, on impulse and, and, and with, with all the uh, courage and belief he can muster, he responds to this way. Peter is much like the, uh, the kid in class, if you've ever been in class, that, that is always the first with his hand up, right? He's got his hand up. He wants to answer the question. He wants the teacher to notice him, right? And so Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He responds with those words that have shaped both Peter's future and the church's future and, and everything going on. That's the right answer. Peter had looked and he'd put all the, the pieces together but Jesus reminds Peter in the verse that follows that, that while that's a great answer from Peter, he kind of humbles Peter a little bit saying, well, that's a great answer, Peter, but, but that's not something that you've come to just on your own conclusion, that God has shown that to you, that God is speaking through you in that moment. And in verse 17, Jesus answered to him and said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So God has shown this to Peter. Peter has seen this, and he has vocalized this truth. Um, and God, as much as, as Jesus' words, God deserves a pat on the back as much as, as Peter does for putting the pieces together with God's help. And so God was speaking through him in that moment. And so Jesus makes this personal request of his disciples. Who do you say I am? He makes it a personal request and question for you as well today. Who do you say that Jesus is. Because they needed to understand, just like you and I need to understand this Jesus. Because that question that we must continually wrestle with and bring to our minds and remind ourselves of our answers, because in the midst of all that we are going through, who do you say Jesus is? People are looking to see how you answer that question. And you demonstrate by how you live, how you respond, how you're dealing with this current situation. Um, who is Jesus? In your life. If you were to go, and I listened to a sermon this week where a guy kind of took uh, the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, there are seven different uh, truths that Jesus says about himself. And, and, and in response to a question like, well, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say Jesus is? Perhaps as you walk through this list, it will reinforce some things that will comfort and encourage and help you as you navigate uh, the worrisome, fearful, uh, frustrating situations we find ourselves in in this time. And so Jesus answered this question seven different times and in seven different ways in the Gospel of John. Uh, maybe just jot them down. I don't think they're on the screen, but just jot these verses and these ideas down. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, then you know how he has all of this in his hands. You know that someone who could claim to be the way to God, the truth of God, and, and the life of God, and if that is true, and if you believe that statement, then you believe that he has all of this in his hands. He is in control. He is working through this because he is the way, and we have that promise. And so Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Is that what you would say of Jesus? In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus would go on in a second way. He would say, I am the bread of life. He sustains us and he cares for us day by day. 
I don't know if you've been to the grocery store. A few weeks ago, I was there and um, thought I would just look for some bread, and there was no bread there, amongst many other things. Um, but there was no bread on the shelf. And that's a nervous thing when you walk in, and several stores later, I finally found some loaves of bread. But um, it's a nervous thing when your basic needs feel like, um, is someone going to take care of me in that way? But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He cares for us, is what he's saying. And not just physically feeding our mouths, but more importantly, feeding our souls. That he cares for us, that he is at work in us and through us, and that, that there is a bread that is better than the bread you'll make a sandwich with. There is a bread that feeds your heart and feeds your soul. And Jesus is the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Things feel a bit dark today, don't they? But in Christ, there is no darkness. And so if you affirm the truth that Jesus is the light of the world, as Jesus said of himself, if you believe that and that, that truth is leading your life, there is no place for darkness. There is no place to think, well, I am lost in the dark and no one's watching me because Jesus says he is light. He is the light of the world. We don't have to go through the, the darkness wondering, well, what's going to happen to me? Well, I know what's going to happen to me because the Lord has my, my life. Now, there may be days that are confusing. There may be moments that we don't understand. But ultimately, from his perspective, he, he has us. We can rest in that. In John chapter 10, verse 11 and 14, he said, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Ah, what a beautiful picture in a time when we wrestle with worry and fear and, and just wondering, where's all this going? The fact that he cares for us. He's in control of all that comes our way. He cares for his sheep. Um, and one of the things that John's gospel does so well is it uses that shepherd analogy in several different places to remind us that Jesus cares about his sheep, his flock. It, it's you and me. He knows us by name. He's watching for the enemy. He cares about you. And so there's that good news that, that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so who is Jesus? Is he the good shepherd over your life? He says, I am the vine in John 15, verses 1 and 5. He connects us to life itself in God, that, that in him, even though a lot of things in your life maybe feel like they are pulling apart and separating and, and struggling, there's nothing that can take you from the, the vine that is the source of life that God himself is. And so when Jesus says, I am the vine, uh, do we believe that? Is that who Jesus is? Are you putting him there in your place? I am the door, he says in John chapter 10, verse 9. It is possible to enter into the presence of God and the presence and nature of God, the God who made us, the God who knows us, the God who is Lord of all through Jesus and what he has done in preparing an opening so that we might connect with that life. And finally, in John 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what we need to know. Uh, and in time and age when, when we're always dealing with that anxiety of death, all of us are always have that in the back of our minds, but in a time when that maybe gets more forefront as we think about people we know that may be struggling or you see people you know that have passed away from this disease or many other things that are going on around us, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is bigger than the threat of death. He is bigger than the fear of death because of what he has done and who he is. And while we fear death, Jesus is hope and life. And so who do you say that Jesus is? If you affirm these things in your life, it will change you. It will change your heart. It will change how you think about and you process each day's news. That yes, those hard realities are there and they're present, but there is someone strong and mighty who is walking with you through those things. 
And so be encouraged today that Jesus is who he said he was. And so we ask the question that, that Jesus asks all of us to wrestle with, uh, who do you say I am? But then as you keep reading in the verses that follow, what Jesus does is he, he begins to take them not where Peter and the disciples think this conversation, well, if Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ, well, then they start thinking about crowns. They're imagining thrones and power. And so it's great that the disciples discovered this truth about Jesus. But Jesus then takes the conversation in a different direction than they would have thought it would. Again, if they're thinking about Messiahs and Christ's, um, they're thinking about crowns and power and authority and privilege. But Jesus knew what was ahead. And that's a, a helpful statement, that Jesus knew exactly what was coming. And Jesus still knows exactly what's coming. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He is in the past and the present and the future. And so we never enter into a time or reality where he is not there. But to Peter and the disciples, the Messiah meant power over others. It meant conquest and revenge against your enemies. It meant political freedom. It, it meant wealth and prestige again. But Jesus shows a different path. Jesus doesn't talk about crowns. He talks about crosses. And Jesus shows that this path that he's going to lead them on, that he's heading on, is a downward path of service and sacrifice, not an upward one to power and fame and comforts. And so Jesus talks of an unpopular quest. And as he begins to talk about what's going to happen to him in the verses that follow, he gets the expected pushback from, from nobody, no one other than Peter here in this passage. Jesus knew where all this was headed. In verse 21, uh, skip down a few verses in your Bible. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Now, just stop and think about that. There's some hard things in that, but think about this passage that, that they would have heard before Jesus died and, and, and was buried. But I want you to think about the power of emotion here, because a lot of us are wrestling with a lot of emotion through a lot of this. They knew this truth, and this isn't the only time and place that Jesus predicted that he would die, be buried, and raise again. But yet, where do you find the disciples later this week after Jesus is is crucified and, and his body's taken away. You find them huddling in fear. And where was, we, a lot of us would have been, but you never find them thinking, well, this is just strange. Where's Jesus? What, I, I think it just illustrates the idea of the power of emotion, that when emotion rules our thoughts, that we forget about truth. We forget about clear things that Jesus has promised to us. And so I would just encourage you to think about what's leading your mind, what's leading your thought life right now. Is it truth or is it emotion? Emotions have their place, but emotions are always bad leaders because they, they take us in the direction of fear and worry and anxiety and uncertainty. But truth is firm. It leaves us and it holds us in, in key places. But when Jesus shared what he knew was ahead, Peter, in the verse follow, the verse 22, uh, look at what Peter does and says. And Peter took Jesus aside as he begins to talk about the path forward. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but the path forward for me is one to a cross, not to the crown. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's a strong word. You ever try to rebuke the Lord because you don't think the Lord knows what's, what, what he's doing? You're questioning his judgment. He rebukes him and says, far be it from you, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
And Peter's saying that, I think, with all the love and admiration he can, that I will protect you, I will fight for you. You'll see that later in, in, if you keep reading the story going forward in Matthew this, this week. Um, but far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter begins to say, you know, Jesus, this is not the thing. This isn't the way this is supposed to play out, right? You're supposed to be the Messiah. There's this upward trajectory where, where you take the throne and it's all good and, and we're right there with you. But we understand Peter's response. He's concerned. He loves Jesus, but he's wrong. Peter was looking at this from a very certain perspective, but Jesus and the words that follow remind him that there is another perspective that all of Jesus' life is governed by. It's not this what I can see today perspective where Peter was at. There is a much more bigger, much bigger perspective uh, from his heavenly father. Jesus immediately recognizes where this, this, this temptation is coming from. Uh, look at Matthew 16, 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't think Jesus believed that Peter was, was Satan. He, he still loved Peter. But he knows the thought of where this is coming from. Because this is not the first time in the Gospels that we have seen that um, Jesus was tempted with an easier path. Back in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, those temptation narratives that you find when, when Jesus was in the desert, 40 days fasting, Jesus, or Satan comes to him and says, hey, I can give you all the kingdoms. I, I can give you this crown. I can give you the authority that you want, that you seek with a much easier path. We'll eliminate the cross. But Jesus said, no, Satan, then, and he says it again here. Because Peter is being used as a mouthpiece to tempt Jesus to an easier way. Jesus says, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, that higher perspective that, that Jesus invites him to think and see the world through versus his limited perspective. Peter uh, becomes the face of temptation. So when you and I are faced with the temptation to doubt or to fear or to worry or fall for the enemy's trap, God has another point of view. And he is looking at this from a very different perspective. And so we need to constantly be asking him, God, help me to see whatever is going on in my life right now. All this chaos. Help us to see this from a bigger perspective. Help me not to be just so consumed with the doubts and the worries and the fears of just today and what I can see today and tomorrow. But give me a bigger, better, bigger and better perspective. Jesus knew that the cross was essential to all that God was doing. There had to be a cross because what God was trying to do in reconciling us to himself required a payment for sin. And that was nowhere on Peter's mind that day. But it was very much on Jesus' mind. Because that is why he came. And we need to make sure that what we see today, that we see from God's viewpoint. And there's a lot of crazy things going on in your life right now, in our world. But asking the questions, okay God, a lot of these things are beyond my control. But what do you want me to know in this time? What should I learn? What should you be teaching me? What would you have me to be doing in this time? How does he want to use our light maybe to impact the world around us that feels pretty dark right now? You see, God is always in the business of teaching, and oftentimes he uses our hardest moments to do that, where he shines the brightest. And so we ought not to be surprised. Peter would later, uh, in one of his letters to other Christians who are suffering and going through hard times, uh, say this in 1 Peter 4, 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through, as if something were strange were happening to you. 
In other words, Peter had learned from this time, this interaction with Jesus, when he saw, you know what, this seemed all surprising and crazy, but, but the Lord has hands on all of it. He was leading us through every step of the way. And so now he gave wisdom to those who were coming behind him to say, hey, when difficult things happen, when those trials come, don't be surprised. Allow the Lord to lead you. Allow the Lord to be at work in those things. You see, God is not surprised by any trial. God is not surprised by, by outbreaks of disease or economic struggles. Calmly trust him. Peter reassures us that we don't need to be surprised because God is faithful in all of this. That doesn't mean it's easy, but God is faithful even through the hard things that we are in. And then Jesus gives them this thing to quand this quandary he puts them in. These, these are memory verses we come back to. Jesus ends by asking them to wrestle with this quandary, and it's the heart of this whole thing. Look at our memory verse again when he says to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. See, our willingness to let go is at the heart of this verse. That whole saving your life versus losing your life dilemma, conversation, quandary that he brings to us is about do I trust in Jesus enough to let go of my way of doing life? Sometimes you see the bumper sticker, God's my co-pilot, but this verse isn't about a co-pilot. <laughs> this is about Jesus being the driver. I get out, I let him have the wheel, and we go where he wants to go and I don't fuss about it. I'm willing to let go of my life, and that's a hard thing for all of us to do. And at different stages of our life, I think we have to relearn this, just like we have to ask the question, well, who is Jesus? I have to ask the question, do I have enough faith in him to just let go? Uh, to let go, because Jesus said, if I'm willing to let go, if I'm willing to lose my life, I will find it. But if I'm willing to demanding and, and pushing and, and holding on to it with all of my might, no matter what I do, eventually I will lose it. And so he invites us to take up the cross. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, you know what? I know what it means for Jesus to take up his cross. There were sins that needed to be, died for, that be paid for. He had to die for them. Uh, there were things that he had to do. His cross made, made sense. But then he says, we should take up our cross and follow him. I, I can't die for anyone's sin. So what does that mean? I, I love the quote that comes from our um, this week uh, is on page 158, where he said, Like Jesus' death, our suffering and sacrifice have saving power, not for the individual soul, but for society as a whole. As Jesus died to atone for our personal sins, so we die to ourselves, to selfishness, to, to greed, to whatever it is. We die to ourselves to reverse the effects of sin in society and families and communities. And then he goes on to give so many examples of, of how when we will take up our cross in service and sacrifice, just as Jesus did, we begin to address some of the things that are broken in our world. It applies in your home. It applies in your community, your neighborhood. As we selfless, selflessly serve and sacrifice of our time, our energies, our, our efforts, our monies, our treasures, our talents, as we give those up as we take them up as a cross and say let me follow you jesus into sacrifice and service then here's how we make a difference in the lives of people one by one maybe a group by group but we'd make a difference and so i would just ask you to think about this dynamic this quandary that jesus asks us to think about 
Have you had to let go of something during these few weeks? I bet you have. Maybe you have had to let go of some control over your life, or at least the illusion that you have control of your life. Maybe there's that sense of which, you know what, so many things that are, are going on around me um, are just beyond my control. And that's hard. We have to wrestle with that. Am I going to let go of that and trust? Or am I going to fight for that and just become miserable? Maybe we've had to let go of financial things, money, as, as some of you have been put into very difficult things monetarily and financially. Or maybe it's letting go of plans and dreams and aspirations. The list could go on and on of things that we have lost and then things that we grieve. And so when we are willing to let go and we wrestle with those things, let me finish with this question I think that is, is helpful for us to think about. When I do lose my life for Christ's sake, or let go of my life, let go of control of my life for Christ's sake, what qualities will they find, will I find in this found life? In this life that Jesus says, you know, let go of it, and you'll find it. What will I find? Well, there's a lot of different things we could put here. Um, one of the things that I have enjoyed about our Core 52 study is that at the end of each uh, weekly homework assignment, there is bonus reading. And I have never been one to do bonus uh, extra credit material. I was never one to do that much in school. Um, but I, with, since I have extra time on my hands, the last two weeks at least, there has been a book that has been recommended to us that uh, I took the time to get and to read. Actually, the first one I listened to because I listen better than I read. Uh, the first one last week with David and that whole theme was a book by Gene Edwards called A Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. And it just was a beautiful picture that tied well into this theme even of, uh, of the brokenness of David. He refused to fight back against Saul. And then it goes and talks about the time when his own son rebelled against him. And, and even his brokenness and his will, submission to God's will, whatever God willed, um, just a brokenness in that. Just a beautiful book. And this week was another beautiful book, The Signature of Jesus by Brennan Manning. And it just, I, I'm thankful for the time to do that. In fact, if, if you do the old Kindle thing, uh, you can buy that book for $2 on Amazon today and be reading it in a moment. But he unpacked some of the steps in that book. He just has a beautiful job of going really deep into me, into asking and unpacking what does it look like to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And in chapter 5, um, he, uh, he highlighted these three things, amongst other things that we could list. But uh, he mentioned the idea that taking up our cross for Jesus meant that he lived fully for God, that he lived for God fully, that there was no, nothing hold back. The thing that he longed to do and to have mo more than anything else was to, to know his Father and to live in relationship with his Father. The central theme in his personal life, in the personal life of Jesus, was this growing intimacy with, this trust in, and love for his Father. His inner life was centered on God. The Father meant everything to him. And so when Christ would commune with his Father, it just strengthened him and shaped his life in so many ways. And so you see him doing so many things, but it's all based out of this hunger to know his Father. He goes in, in the chapter, he, he gives this quote, that a life lived for God is remarkably well-rounded. Its joys are genuine, its peace is profound, its humility is deep, its power is formidable, its love is enveloping, its simplicity, it's the simplicity of a trusting child. 
It is the life and power in which the prophets and the apostles moved. It is the life and power of Jesus of Nazareth who taught that when our eye is singly focused, that the whole body is full of light. And so out of that little chapter, he just gave an exercise that I would encourage you uh, to maybe employ in your life. It's a simple one. He just recommended praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, slowly and thoughtfully and humbly, and allowing just the, the strength of those words of, of our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, and just walking your way through that and allowing it to, to renew the joy and commitment that you had when you surrendered your life to Christ in your baptism, or allowing it to lift the burdens and, and heal your heart or allowing it to guide your response to all that you're facing, just morning, noon, and evening, keeping your heart and your mind singularly focused on your Father is good for your soul. And so what does it mean to take up our cross? Maybe it means that just like Jesus, we, we live for God. That's our cross, is that of all the things that we can live for, I'm going to live for Him most. But also, number two, that Jesus lived for others. Jesus had this thing that probably flowed out of his life with God, that he lived for others. He says this in the book, that one of the mysteries of the gospel tradition is the strange attraction of Jesus to the unattractive, his strange desire for the undesirable, his strange love for the unlovely. And the key to this mystery is, of course, the Father, that Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. He loves those whom the Father loves. You find him in John 13 washing the feet of his disciples, even the one that would betray him. And he would finish that act with these, so I have done, so you do for one another. And there's this beautiful picture of Jesus on the cross. If you remember it, he's been hung there, he's been put there, and he says those beautiful but confounding words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. They don't understand what they're doing. And just like learning to to, uh, to say the Lord's Prayer from, the, from our heart and, and tap into the power of that regularly is good for our soul and our relationship with our Father. So learning to repeat this phrase as you're dealing with people, that Jesus had this unique way of saying, you know what, he would see people and they weren't annoying, they, they weren't uh, troublesome, they weren't people that weren't worthy of his time. He so many times saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And there was a sympathy and an empathy and a love for them that grew out of just understanding that, you know what, they haven't been loved like they need to be loved, or they haven't kept growing because someone gave up on them. And, and so learning to practice this phrase, Father, forgive them, they don't understand, um, is a quote, is a phrase that when you get frustrated with people, uh, moms with your kids, how about this? Um, when they get frustrated with people, or your husband for that matter, uh, it will change your perspective quickly. That nothing will turn resentment into compassion quicker than this little prayer. Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. And so God draws us into serving others with his example of Jesus. And finally, the, the simplicity of life he highlights. Just that there's so much complex in our world, right? And one of the hidden blessings that I have appreciated more in these last few weeks is just the simplicity of life. The calendar's pretty open. Um, there's time to do a lot of things that I would not have done before. And our lives in this global village have grown overly complex and so crowded, and there's new obligations that grow overnight, as he says, and just as Jack's beanstalk grows up overnight. Our days become never-ending succession, a succession of appointments, meetings, burdens, and responsibilities. 
We're too busy to smell the flowers, to waste time with our spouses, to befriend our children, to cultivate true friends, or to be friends to those who have no friends. And that busyness of life, that frantic, cluttered pace of life pushes those things out. And so weary and breathless, he says, we sense that life is slipping away like a performance that we slip from costume to costume to play our role in the next scene. Then we regret that we have tasted so little of the peace and joy Jesus promised. And so Jesus invites us to take up our cross, to live singularly for your Father in relationship with him, to live in service of other people and to find the joy of just loving them with the love that the Father has for them and the simplicity of life that we should pursue that we all appreciate, I hope we all appreciate in a moment like this, but the simplicity of life, the clutter has kind of been taken away from us and may we learn that lesson and when this all is over, may we not just rush back in and fill our life with all the clutter we can and we lose the simplicity because it's in the simplicity that relationships happen and that good things happen, that we know our God, that we can serve our neighbor, we know our families, we can love our families and that we are loved by our God. It's the simplicity of life. Jesus would say this to us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for that invitation to that life. Thank you that uh, there was a Jesus who, although he had every power, every right, every privilege of heaven and earth that was due to him, he came and he simply served and he sacrificed himself so that we might be saved. And we are thankful for that gift. But Father, as we read this week, um, if we confess him as Lord, we're obligated to follow his example. We cannot celebrate a Lord that we won't imitate. Father, would you help us to see that that cross was not just a benefit we receive, it's an example we are called to follow. And so, Father, whatever taking up our cross may look like in this season, may it certainly mean that we, we seek after the heart of our Father and the love of our Father as Jesus did, and may we serve people as Jesus did, and, and may we, we keep it simple as Jesus did, um, whatever that may look like in our season right now. And taking up a cross is not fun. It is oftentimes painful. It is oftentimes costly, but Lord, the joy and the reward that comes from having lived selflessly and to live sacrificially and to live as a servant uh, fills us with a joy that nothing else in this world can give us. And so, Father, may we embrace the cross. May we embrace the Christ of the cross, following in his example, taking up our cross to serve, to give of ourselves for your glory and your honor and for the good of those around us. So we love you. We are thankful for, for this day. And we pray your blessing upon us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.